Hi, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. BTS Podcast is a podcast where I talk to people about the behind the scenes of what they do. That is what BTS stands for. This episode is one of two episodes that I had the privilege of recording with co-founders of Kanapa and Sencha Labs, Ruben Torf and Molly, Ruben and Molly. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Rebellious PR. They are who coordinated these episodes. You can hear my conversation with their founder, Evie Smith, in a previous podcast episode. So if you're interested in PR and running a PR firm, I highly recommend you listen to that. This episode is with Ruben. He is a chemical engineer with a background in computational modeling and equipment design. So we talk about what that means and what he does at Kanapa and Central Labs. At Central Labs, they do premium quality hemp extracts and Kanapa is their line of CBD products. I'm gonna do a quick plug. Their products are incredible. I grabbed some shortly after recording this episode because I don't know. I think it's important that if I'm going to say that their products are great, that I try them and make sure that their products are great. I'm pretty particular about what I recommend. I bought several products to try them out and I was a big fan of each of them and have placed a few orders since and gifted quite a few to friends who have a hard time decompressing or struggle with chronic pain. I have really bad TMJ and um, have, you know, I'm like a fairly active person and I, I don't tend to do relaxing activities so I get a fair amount of injuries and I found that their lotion was um, just particularly helpful. So as a sort of uh, special benefit to podcast listeners, you can use BTS Podcast 25 to save on your order. If you look up Kanapa, you can find their website at getkanapa.com. If you're not sure what CBD is and you don't really understand how to use it, they have a great FAQ page. I also 10 out of 10 recommend listening to April Pride's podcast, How to Do the Pot. If you are a longtime listener of this podcast, you will know that I had April Pride on quite some time ago. She's really terrific and has been just a really impactful voice surrounding educating women on CBD and cannabinoids and just cannabis consumption in general. So I definitely recommend listening to her podcast. If you look, you can find episodes that are specific. I think there's one that I think the title has to do with pills and that one is specific to the senior population using CBD and cannabinoids to treat pain and other ailments. And then there's also several that are just very specific to women and menstrual cycles and things like that. So I definitely recommend you listen to that for a better understanding of using CBD. One of the best things that I learned from April is that if you perhaps have uh, consumed too much THC, that using some CBD will help balance that out. And um, for those of us who have ever experienced an edible, I think we can all agree that sometimes uh, too much is too much and you don't know it until it hits. Anyways, I had a great time talking to Ruben. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I got to learn so much and I have just probably hundreds of more questions for both him and Molly. Please do listen to the following episode. These are being released at the same time where you can hear about Molly's work, what she does in policy, how she has just learned to manage time running the company. We talk about how they manage this company as a couple and also maintain a relationship. We also talk about what you should be looking for on the CBD products that you buy. So listen to both episodes. There's tips in both episodes around what people should be looking for, how 
labs test, how they do extraction, and just so much more. I wish I understood it better. I learned a lot, and I, there's just so much more to learn. Please do find the podcast and myself on LinkedIn. I will be posting some of the um, things that I learned from this. That way they're all digestible in one place if you want to reference them. If you'd like to support this podcast, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. You can become a monthly contributor at anchor.fm slash BTS podcast. Huge shout out to Idris and Camillo. I really appreciate your ongoing support. And you too will get a shout out if you uh, support this on a monthly basis. Even a one-time donation would be great. You'll get a one-time shout out. This episode was supposed to come out 420. This year has been uh, just tough. I know there's a lot of great podcasters out there who have been sticking to their weekly format and I'm not one of them. I'm also not getting paid for this. So um, in addition to family obligations and social responsibility and just many other things that I felt called to do to contribute to society, this has sort of fallen by the wayside. So I appreciate everyone's patience on my less than reliable cadence with this podcast. And obviously monthly supporters help incentivize ongoing releases of this podcast because it can become more of a priority when there are not other things that I'm sort of focusing on doing that help pay the bills. Other ways you can support this podcast is if you travel ever again, uh, maybe you will, maybe you won't. I'm a little travel averse right now. I highly recommend booking a hotel with Hotel Tonight. They have a great loyalty program, excellent hotel options, and most importantly to all of us, terrific rates. You can use LCOOK61 when you sign up. I recommend signing up today, using that promo code, and then someday, should you choose to book a hotel, uh, you'll save money. One of the other services that I'm a big fan of is Soothe. I use Soothe um, when it's not a pandemic. I got a massage last week because I was in really severe pain and we did a really great socially, I guess it wasn't socially distanced because she was not six feet away from me, but she wore a mask, I wore a mask. She was really cool about letting me like do another spray down of her table and stuff before I got, before I laid down. And we did it in the backyard, which was really terrific. So if you want to book a massage, you could use code LZLRZ to save on your first Soothe booking, and then I will save on my future Soothe bookings, which helps a lot. If you have struggle with anxiety or stress or adrenal fatigue the way that I do, or more than I do, who knows what the scale is of anxiety these days, but I really recommend getting a massage if you're uncomfortable doing that, which is totally understandable. Well, first of all, if you do it, please tip well. Secondly, if you're uncomfortable doing it, I recommend taking an Epsom salt bath. If you don't have a bath, just soak your feet in Epsom salt. It is helpful. If you're in, See if your insurance covers acupuncture. If it does, I highly recommend seeing an acupuncturist. Um, those are things that have really helped change my life. Anyways, thank you for listening. Enjoy the conversation. Subscribe, rate, review, share this. Follow BTS Podcast on social medias at, at BTS the Podcast. Feel free to follow me if you want. You don't have to. At Lene Cook. Thanks again for listening. And buy some kanapa. I think you'll like it. Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. And today I am on with Ruben Torf. Did I say your last name right? Yes. Okay, cool. I probably should have checked before we started recording because we did have like a brief conversation and usually I check on people's last names. But for some reason today, I felt very confident and did not double check. Um, Ruben? Yeah, you did it great. It's a, it's a short word for sure. Beautiful. So Ruben <laughs> is the co-founder of both Central Labs and Canapa. And so we can start off. Um, oh, also, he's a chemical engineer. So that's really what we're going to talk about is what that work is, and then how it applies to both companies and his journey and what exactly he does. 
and you have a background in computational modeling and equipment design, including data collection for optimized production efficiency and many types of hydroponic systems. Uh, I imagine that there's some people who are listening because they know exactly what that means. And so they want to hear details around that. And there's a lot of people who probably have no idea what that means. So is there sort of like a version of what you do that you would use to like tell a 10 year old? I think in general, I would just self-describe as a scientist. I think that's like the easiest way to kind of wrap your head about around what I do. It's applying the same uh, mindset and probably the same skill set just to different problems. So if you're designing equipment for um, like hydroponic systems or just growing plants, growing vegetables, for instance, um, it's not all that different from designing uh, extraction systems or um, when I worked in the oil and gas industry, it's the same principles, a lot of the same mathematical equations, same approach to problem solving. Uh, computational modeling is also kind of in that same ballpark where you're saying, I need to collect data and then I need to be able to model that data to make some type of a prediction about the future. And it doesn't really matter if you're applying that to um, plants grown indoors or again, large uh, manufacturing environments with, with petroleum or uh, different types of chemical processes. Um, today, we're just applying that same skill set to uh, botanical extraction, not for a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah, definitely more for a 20-year-old. Yeah, and, and also, yeah, 22-year-old, I guess, 20, because it is 21 now, the age limit of, like, when you're allowed to start consuming cannabis. It is, it is. Um, most of, so we are hemp extractors, so... Technically, uh, you know, it varies state by state, and my partner is definitely more on the regulatory compliance component of that. Um, so we don't deal with a lot of THC, is I guess my point. So it's not a very intoxicating substance that, that we manufacture and sell. But is there still a 21-year-old limit for CBD? Uh, it, it varies state by state. I think there are states in which it's not. Um, so our age gate on our websites are for 21, and that's more of a... I think just trying to be exceptionally careful about the way that we present ourselves. It, it is the plant that we work with is cannabis sativa and there are strains of cannabis sativa that are high in THC and we don't really want to mix, uh, confuse people or mix up what we do with the more intoxicating version of it. So we're more comfortable dealing with especially elderly people that are looking for, um, you know, just relief for arthritis or different inflammation issues or sleep issues. Um, that's generally where we're targeting. We're definitely not gearing it towards people under 21. Um, that said, I think that there's a lot of benefit to people consuming a product that is non-intoxicating and can also you know, have these other myriad benefits. But um, due to FDA regulations and the way they don't want us to discuss it, I'm going to avoid making anything that could remotely be perceived as a, as a health claim. That's fair. Yeah, I think that's very wise. <laughs> So when you're, because I, I pulled that language to describe what you do from the bio, I think on either Central Labs or the Canapo um, website. Um, so when it talks about uh, including data collection for optimized production efficiency, does that mean that you're then looking at the data for production? Like what kind of optimizations are being made? Like what does that mean exactly? So the biggest area where we start optimizing any manufacturing system is an efficiency. So Efficiencies can look like a couple of different, um, I would say, metrics. So CBD is a molecule, and we purchase hemp based on the amount of CBD in the plant. So we're actually paying more or less per mass of CBD, per mass of this molecule. 
the molecule is locked in this plant matrix. It's, you know, it's stuck in this plant and we've got to remove it. The way that you remove molecules is through an equilibrium with some type of a solvent, some type of larger environment. So you soak it in, let's say, alcohol, and this molecule becomes uh, liberated. It gets out of the plant and is now just free floating in that alcohol. So that's an equilibrium basis. There's, there's always going to be equilibrium, meaning that there is a balance of what's in the alcohol and what's left in the plant. So you necessarily are leaving some amount in the plant. So when we're talking about data analysis for uh, production and, and efficiency, the first thing that we wanted to, to look at was what's the maximum amount of uh, CBD that we can actually extract? And this is a percent basis, right? Because it's not necessarily, um, because there's different grades of hemp, it, it matters whether you know, the 90% or 95% matters more than saying I want to get uh, one kilogram out from this amount of hemp. So if it's one kilogram out from 100 pounds, that's an irrelevant number to me. I want to know how much did we start with in an actual mass of CBD. Did we start with one kilogram? Did we start with 90 kilograms? We've got a terrible efficiency. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Would it be a little bit like, well, Sam's the um, extraction process. Would it be a little bit like then when you buy a grapefruit and it has a really thick skin? Instead of play, paying for the really thick skin, you're just paying for like the meat of the grapefruit. Exactly. I like that analogy. I was thinking you were going to go a different route with juicing it, which might be even simpler of just saying there's X amount of juice oh. in your grapefruit. And no matter how hard you squeeze it, you could always squeeze it even harder and get a little bit more out. But quite literally, sometimes the juice is not worth the squeeze. You know, maybe you need like a pneumatic press right. to get that last milliliter of juice out. At some point, especially when you're in a for-profit business, you have to make that cutoff somewhere. You just have to make a, a decision that, okay, I know I'm throwing this amount out and you just kind of bake that effect into um, either pricing or just some other way that you kind of are, uh, you know, reusing waste streams or something like that. There's a lot of ways to kind of pick up uh, losses downstream, but um, yeah, I like the, the grapefruit juicing might be a good analogy. I like that. That's awesome. I love that addition. And so then with some of your decision-making in whether to use, a process that then really gets everything out that I assume would have to do with the amount that you're processing. So it might be worth it to do that extraction when you're processing like huge, enormous amounts versus if you're like a small or medium sized business, that then it's probably not worth it to invest in that sort of technology. Because I imagine it's like added machinery or technology or whatever to do. Like I know I used to work with a tortilla chip company and they hit like a certain point where it then became sort of clear that it was necessary for them to get a, they were basically pressing their bag with like a manual process before when they were doing smaller batches. And then they hit the tipping point where it then became apparent that having the machine that like brings the bag, seals it, pours the chips in and then seals the other end was going to be necessary to invest in if they needed to scale up their production. Yeah. Absolutely. Scale of production dictates a ton of uh, the tolerances for efficiency. I mean, the notion of a low efficient pro low efficiency process could mean that you've got fairly low margins. But if you work at a high volume, you know, like a larger manufacturer, the losses of, I mean, tortilla chips that they might be spilling or the loss of uh, additional bags or whatever, you know, like lost plastic, they they can probably eat those up in the sense that uh, just through volume, just saying, you know, I know we're making a much smaller margin, but like multiplied over a, a large volume, that margin is actually a pretty profitable number. And that's where I think uh, the fun of business comes in. I mean, that's where like interfacing business and engineering is, is a lot of fun um, because you really get to look at waste streams and trying to 
you know, re-monetize things that you couldn't monetize or even linking up with additional companies and saying, look, what's waste to you guys is absolute gold to us. Um, I, I think that's one of actually the, the totally under um, appreciated components of the hemp industry right now is the waste hemp that is being expended from virtually every CBD product on the market right now. There is uh, plant material that is being ejected out the back end of that process, right? CBD is the molecule in the plant. As soon as you've pulled it out, you just essentially throw that hemp away. Um, it could be used for mulch. It could be used um, for a couple of like kind of like pretty simple products. But the most interesting thing to me is actually reusing that, turning it into plastics or biofuels. You've got this huge cell cellulose source. You've, all that you've really pulled out is... Um, is CBD. I mean, in some cases, you pulled out some some lipids and probably alkaloids and other molecules. But the but the plant matrix, which you could picture in a, at a basic level of just you know burning this plant material to boil water, turn it into steam turbine. This most simple um, you know energy manufacturing that we could probably think of. That is something that could be done with the thousands and thousands of pounds of hemp, um, let alone turning them into plastics or some other like really awesome value added. Um, product. Are you involved in the portion of figuring out with the hemp that's left over after you've done the extraction? I assume that that's like a group effort of the company of figuring out then what partnerships make sense and like who can and sort of like evaluating. I guess at that point, it's almost a little bit of a bidding game and seeing like who is going to like be the most effective partner and then figuring out logistics of like transporting the, the hemp and stuff like that. So what what do you guys do with that or can you talk about it yeah no i'm happy to chat about it we're i'm pretty proud about where we're at right now the first i'd say 10,000 15,000 pounds we went through i think we were optimistic that somebody would actually come in and buy it from us we didn't ever get that far we um we actually ended up having to pay a company to take it away and I, they, I think, just were like an industrial mulch company. I got to look back and see who we actually ended up going with. But it was that was reverse bidding. We were just trying to figure out what's the cheapest way to get rid of what ends up becoming, you know, cubic meters of tons of cubic meters of just like wasted space. Right now, one of the farms that we work with, uh, he's a hemp grower, but he's also got a wide array of other crops that he grows. And the hemp that we, that we use, he said, makes great um, I don't know if it's like lining or something, but it, it, he uses it to stop water from coming into certain sections. And so it's not really a grow media, but it's just like a botanical, like a, a natural um, barrier for like they're either wastewater or something. I've actually not been out to the farm to see it. I'm saying this and kind of picturing this. Like a beaver dam. Yeah, maybe something like that. Although beaver dams are pretty advanced. I don't think it's quite that intense. But. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And I know one of my cousins for a while was looking into starting a um insulation company with hemp-based insulation cool. because it's actually really good for that which is interesting i would have had no no clue that that could be used for that which i thought was really cool yeah there's there's a lot of uses i mean it's got a high what's called a high void fraction which means that there's a lot of air pockets in there which is what you want in any type of insulation and yeah there's so many opportunities we've really developed some incredible technology over the last 20 years that can turn um, botanical products into, you know, fuel when you think about uh, corn being used for ethanol, granted you need a sugar source for that, but, you know, the hempcrete um, technology where you're, you know, you're, you're using the same cellulose starting material, you have all these carbon chains in there, and you're just sort of like reconfiguring the way these carbon atoms are um, are aligned and what molecules they're part of, and you can make a ton of stuff, and, and that's where I'm really excited for the future of 
where what hemp is doing at an industrial level, um, you know, I'm picturing corn and soybeans are like the next kind of inline product that have been experimented with at this type of a scale. I mean, we're really talking about a, a lot of material. Um, and when you have a lot of waste material where the primary company, the primary user of that crop has already made money on it, um, it opens up the door for a lot of either, uh, you know, like I'm picturing grants from the government or just other companies that are not necessarily profit driven that can have this really cheap feedstock to start playing around with. Um, and that, that'll, I think, drive a lot of really cool products. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm actually going to write that down for my notes for Molly, because I think that that's a really good point for when I talk to her. Because um, I assume that between the two of you, she's who, with like government grants and stuff like that for, for you guys? So we have not worked with government grants specifically for this, but she would be the person to do that when we're ready to jump into that. Okay. Uh, the regulatory compliance component has been an incredibly difficult landscape to try to navigate. There's, you know, state by state legislations that are in direct contradiction with federal legislations. And it seems like some of the states are trying to, you know, poke the federal government in the eye or try to like get them to, to move a little bit faster on certain legislation. And so trying to figure out what markets we can sell into, what packaging applies to the most markets. Um, that's that takes up so much of Molly's time. Um, reading the actual bills, I mean, she's uh, she's really patient to go through, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of pages that some of these legislative bills come out with. And um, also keeping her finger on the pulse of like what's coming through the pipelines, I think it just takes a lot of time. And it's, it's a lot of personal communication. I mean, there's not like, you know, a Reddit thread or something where they're just like, Maybe there is. I'm not a Reddit guy, but you know they're not really talking about what's planned for next session or whatever. But right. if you talk to the right people, generally they have a feeling of, yeah, we, we want to do this because we're seeing this amount of data come through from the industry, and we know we need to make this happen. Um, and so a lot of future proofing requires a lot of predicting where the legislation is going to be and where our regulatory requirements are going to be in a few years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So prior to working in extraction you were working on hydroponic systems. Um, yes. What was that crossover like? Like, is that a totally different feel? Like, did you have to sort of uh, like switch gears completely? Because that seems like two very different types of work. So let me start with what the connection is, and then I can kind of probably more coherently walk through the actual timeline of it. I've been really interested in botanical extracts as a personal, um, I would say like personal therapeutic uh, device um, for about 10 years now. I found a lot of relief from Panax ginseng, especially. My concern has always been that one uh, experience to the next one, like literally I was buying this in boxes of tea and I was really interested in this one brand and then Whole Foods stopped carrying that brand and I tried to switch to another one. And it took me months to find another brand that made me feel the same way as that first uh, brand. Avita might have been the first brand that I tried. They're a pretty old company. They don't do a lot of branding, but um, really quality uh, botanicals and their stuff. So my concern there was it's not standardized. I'm not taking the same amount of whatever active constituent is in this plant. Um, and you know, I don't even know if it's being cured the right way. I don't know if it's being... Um, I don't know if it was the right part of the plant, right? I mean, when it comes to the plant like Iconacea, which I also am a big fan of, the wrong component of a different species of Iconacea has different components. So the roots of, of uh, Iconacea purpurea are not as rich in the Iconaeocides as the, as the flowers are. Um, so anyway, I've been on this quest to kind of figure out how to standardize these plant medicines. It was primarily for myself, but I also couldn't get other people to, to really jump on board and enjoy 
the what I found was uh, myriad benefits from this stuff at a relatively cheap price compared to what other medicines can actually cost. So growing plants hydroponically was one method by which I thought we could standardize uh, um, botanicals, herbal medicines. And to some extent, cannabis was a, uh, was a way for me to, to, to learn about this stuff. Reading how they were standardizing different cannabis uh, growing methods, I got really interested in the, in the hydroponic growing methods for cannabis. Um, I never grew it myself, but I read these books on it and basically started designing um, uh, growing equipment that I wanted to use for plants like um, like Tulsi, um, um, you know, just other botanicals basically. So the connection to extraction is the other method. So that's on like the front end of how you could standardize a plant. You could grow them all the exact same way, get the exact same genetics, start cloning all of them, and you get the same product that comes out. Um, on the extraction side, you're really doing it on the back end. You're saying it might not matter exactly that everything is grown the same way, but if I can extract things the same way and get the relevant molecules to a relatively standardized form, you know, that's a, that's a repeatable experience that people can have. And so I was in Chicago in a, I was living in a warehouse there at, um, in the West Loop, building these hydroponic towers that I would just kind of dream up and start drawing out and then go to Home Depot and buy a bunch of uh, metal pieces and kind of figure out a way to fasten them all together. Um, you know, had to figure out plumbing, had to figure out a whole bunch of these other components that I really didn't have a lot of hands-on experience with. And it was, it's incredibly time consuming and it's expensive to do it that route. And I started, you know, I I'd heard about CBD and then when, um, when Oregon's legislation was passed at the state level, that they were going to create a, a pilot program that was going to be relatively uh, open-ended in the sense that they weren't going to be limiting uh, grants to certain like like just research only type licenses. It was going to be they were going to allow both extractors and farmers to be these for-profit, somewhat open market businesses. Um, I sort of got uh, the idea that okay, this is a route to standardize a plant molecule, plant-based molecule, um, and I wasn't sure that CBD would be as legal federally as it is today, but the writing was kind of on the wall with the 2014 Farm Bill that the federal government cared a lot less about CBD than they did about THC. Um, so anyway, the, the, the path there from going from trying to grow the plants at a standardized level to actually just extracting them to standardize them, philosophically is not very different in my mind. And the engineering concepts are not fundamentally different. You've got fluid dynamics, you've got thermodynamics, I and mean, there's, there's a finite number of like engineering disciplines that there are, and you pretty much apply like four out of any five to, um, to every single engineering project. And it doesn't matter if you're building rocket ships or um, hydroponic gear, it's the mindset's the same, the approach is the same. And when it comes to data analysis for efficiencies, kind of coming back to where we started the conversation, that's a component of any engineering uh, improvement loop. You are always going to be collecting data and saying, well, what's not working here? And the level of instrumentation that you have allows you to collect more or less data. Um, and the amount of processing power and, and finance that you have allows you to um, you know, iterate as much as, you, as much as you can or can't. So it's kind of finding the right balance there. And I think that this is kind of why I'm fascinated in applying engineering principles to business is you're forced to do something at a profitable level or figure out another way to do it. Um, and it's just a, it's a fascinating mindset to have to be in. Yeah, it's those sort of challenges that really force you to be creative. And I completely understand, like, why people get uh, stagnant or maybe stuck in their ways or, like, want to do it 
that specific way and don't want to focus on the business aspect of it. Um, but I think it does when you can view it as like a creative challenge and as a way to learn versus as a versus seeing it as a roadblock that can be really helpful in people finding better solutions is when you sort of approach your own problem as if it were a hackathon versus going like, well, I want to do things my way and this isn't working for me right now and like sort of just stomping your feet about it. Um, Absolutely. You know, I think that's well put. So one of the things that you brought up, which I'm glad you did because it's a great segue to one of my questions, is you did bring up sort of the lack of consistency. Not sort of. There's a definite lack of consistency when it comes to when, I mean, across uh, CBD products, when it comes to just understanding the type of effect that they'll have. And so, and, and the overall quality and any sort of ethical issues or, or whatever it may be that people are often concerned about, what is some language or, I guess, like details that people should look for in the labeling of their products? So if you're looking for a standardized experience, you want to see what are called certificates of analysis. These should be third-party analytical labs that are able to test a product for potency of the CBD. Um, and you could look for potency of other cannabinoids as well. I think that the phrase full spectrum is so ridiculous to me uh, in terms of its lack of, I mean, that phrase itself is not standardized. It doesn't mean the same thing. Somebody asked us yesterday, what's the isolate product equivalent of, you know, a full spectrum dose, you know, it's like 25 milligrams. And the thing in my mind that jumps out immediately is when you see a phrase like, yeah, this is 25 milligrams of full spectrum CBD it's so irrelevant. It, you're not describing what are the other molecules that make it full spectrum. That 25 milligrams is, is probably, and this is what's annoying, it, it's only probably right now, referring to the amount of CBD. And so there could be 30 milligrams of total cannabinoids in there. There could be, you know, if, if the dose says 25 milligrams of CBD, it might only 25.1 milligrams of, of total cannabinoids in there. And so looking for what's called a COA, um, not just the phrasing, we use third-party lab testing. I think that's a really easy thing to print. The right way to do it is to link either on the product itself with a QR code or a URL, um, you know, like a naked URL that you could just read and type in, um, or like a lot number that you go into their website and put in. You should be able to see the third-party lab result. It should not be uh, adjusted to say, you know, to, to have this great marketing thing, to have the branding of the, of the company on it. It should have the name of the lab because um, that's when you should start trusting. There are trustworthy labs and there are not so trustworthy labs. And so- um, How do people know I, what are trustworthy labs and what aren't? Like, is there a list that people should be referencing? Is there, so, like, where yeah. can people find that information? So I would, so all of these labs should be accredited. So they're, so in Oregon, we have a really robust um, accreditation. I don't know how that word is said, accreditation? Um, they, they have, accreditation, accredi I think is what it is. Yeah, accreditation. Okay, it's got a really robust accreditation um, process um, for cannabis labs, so labs that actually test for cannabinoids. And so the first thing would be to make sure that the lab is actually registered in the state, which you could find state licenses for. I mean, some of this requires some research. When, when you asked, if, is there a list? And I said, yes, I'm thinking more um, a tougher to find list. Somebody should compile one, I think. But um, I would just find labs that you see pop up a lot. I'll be honest, the, there's only a handful of labs that I've seen COAs for across the country. Um, we work with one uh, pretty closely because we tried out a whole lot of them. And honestly, 
if, the, if I couldn't get a PhD on the phone on the other side, when we had a question about why a result looked a goofy way, I just didn't trust the lab. Um, that's not to say that that that's you need fair. a PhD to do some of this stuff. Um, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Should seem like a, a low bar to, to set when when what they do is sell science, right? Um, yeah. And and the other concern is that they are for profit, right? And so there's a concern that relationships get built up over time. Personally, I see it going the route that uh, you know big accounting firms go, where there's certain restrictions about the amount of time you're allowed to work with the same accounting firm. Um, and that just is to stop any type of a, of a relationship or a, or a pay for results kind of um, situation when you're trying to trust, when the public is trying to trust those third party accounting firms or third party labs as, um, as objective and sources of kind of, um, you know, unbiased truth. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's interesting that, because I was just kind of going through a like sort of mind map of different options of ways it could work. And it would be interesting if it was done almost like at the academic level, because then it is money for universities, but then it potentially, it just has less potential to turn into, um, I don't know, like a not honest and like just a dishonest environment when it's students who like they are, they are not getting raises by doing this sort of work. And so, but I just could imagine that that would be a more effective way to do it and get funding for universities is if it was at the university level being done because PhD students are doing rigorous work like that anyhow. So if it were done sort of across the university group, or I don't know exactly how that works in that department, but that there's just so many different ways it could be done that would be better. Like I think that we obviously have ran into that same problem in the car industry with um, that whole issue with what was it like Volkswagen years ago saying that their cars got like a certain amount of gas mileage, but then they didn't. And there's just so many ways that people can get around rules that it almost has to be done in a way that makes it whatever like the testing version of open source is where there's like not competition for that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that bringing in academia I, I always love that idea in general. I'll, I'll be honest that there does need to be an eye on the throughput level because I would be concerned that at an academic institution, they wouldn't necessarily have the throughput or the, the sample management. You know, as a business, you, you this is an integral part of what we do as a business is test our products in a third-party lab. And so it would make sense that the supply chain that a business relies on is another business, not so much academia. But I think there's probably... Um, audits that could that could be uh, implemented for some of these labs. There could be, you know, I, I think I'm a big fan of journalism as a form of keeping uh, businesses honest. And so I think there could be, you know, journalists that are grabbing samples off the shelf and saying, okay, well, they said they were tested at this lab. Let's send the same product back to that lab and see what comes up. Let's send it to another lab. And I, I kind of want to, I want to say something at the outset here when we're talking about something like analytical chemistry, which is that it is complicated, number one. And for the most part, there's an element of human error and variability that is accepted in analytical chemistry, right? Um, you know, when they're looking for like subatomic particles at CERN, there's, you know, there's a, a degree of certainty that is required. Um, that's not really required in the field that, that we're talking about here that requires analytical chemistry. So a plus or minus 10% is actually a pretty reasonable amount in my mind um, for a lab to be able to, to determine. What that means is that if you're expecting something to say 25 milligrams, you've got to be accepting that potentially the result that you scan is a plus or minus um, 
an amount on there, right? So it would be plus or minus uh, 2.5 milligrams. But um, the notion that everything is going to be precise has caused us some concerns or caused us, I shouldn't say concerns, it's more like consternation, right? Because we've had it, customers say, you know, this product, you guys sent us a COA and it said it was 80% something. And my lab is saying it's 79% something. And to me, I'm saying, okay, that's the same number. Like we're actually agreeing. You verified that our lab works. I'm happy with that number. But having to have that discussion um, is difficult. And, you know, there's a, another big issue with analytical chemistry. And part of this is just how do, how do you message this to the public? But there's a limit of quantification. There's a limit of detection, meaning that below us, and these are two different numbers, right? Um, for the same test, below a certain amount, I can tell you there's absolutely CBD in this product, but I just can't quantify it. And then there's a limit below which um, you'll say, I can't detect any T or CBD in this product. The issue with that limit is it's, um, it can be misleading because people will tend to believe, well, if it's not detected, then it doesn't exist. And that's, that's absolutely not true. You can have, and, and these are different test to test. So you can have a pretty high LOQ or pretty high LOD, this limit of detection, limit of quantification. Um, and those vary lab to lab, those vary experiment to experiment. I mean, in terms, I should say experiment, um, analysis to analysis. Um, and so the, I, I guess my point is there's a lot of nuances that go about it. And so rather than even outsourcing it to academia, I'd rather have academia write the rules that consumers can read to understand the COA. Because it's, it's, it's incredibly important to understand the COA. It's also incredibly difficult to understand the COA. Um, which is why I prefer to talk to actually a PhD in that, right? I mean, like they know more than I do. That's the point. I want them to tell me what I'm supposed to be looking at um, rather than make an assumption. So uh, I can pontificate yeah, on that chemistry for a while. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And I think it really, having that sort of thing would also really help level set values and priorities because right now people are operating with such different values and ideas of what that means. Um, and I think if somebody doesn't have a, in understanding, I don't know, like I think even in marketing, I because I have a long background in marketing that I've had clients before where they've gone on the back end of whatever it is that we're using, like maybe we're using a tool to gather information and then decide on like an amount of impressions or an engagement rate. And when you're doing something with numbers that are like by the millions, when you have something like 35 million views of something or whatever, Certainly, each platform that you're using to look at that information is going to be off by sometimes a couple thousand or sometimes tens of thousands. And does it really make that big of a difference? Like, I think people are just um, constantly looking for ways because they're afraid that, A, they're going to go back to their boss and then be wrong. Like, they're afraid of those types of things. Um, and then they're also afraid that whoever they're paying is being misleading or like not honest and that they're not getting their money's worth. And so I think when you can operate or at least establish a relationship with the same values of like, hey, just so we're on the same page, here's what we're like an understanding. But those can be really tough conversations, especially if you are afraid of like closing a deal or not, because you definitely don't want to then not have business just because you decided to have tough conversations up front like that can be really tricky yeah um so i want to talk a little bit about because the two companies that you have are different and sencha started first and then am i saying canapa correctly um i'm comfortable with canapa i pronounce it as canapa it is italian for hemp and so i'd like to think it's said with a little bit more of a Mediterranean flair than canapa. Oh, then canapa is great. Yeah, I don't. Canapa I mean, does sound better. Nice. Okay, then let's go with that. 
I'm yeah. Kanapa sounds great. I I felt like I was saying it wrong because I think Tatiana said it to me as Kanapa, but then I read it and I was like, well, cannabis. Like maybe maybe right. I misheard. I was like, but I don't think it was that like hard with the hard vowels. I think it was like said nicer. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely supposed you. to be a bit softer, I think, but it's also uh, I think once words, especially brands, once they're kind of just like out there in the collective consciousness, they can, you know, phrases like the, the way things are said takes on, a, I mean, they're said differently in different regions of the United States, let alone, you know, within the entire United States. I'm just thinking of the way people refer LaCroix. to LaCroix would be one, even like, so I'm like, <laughs> like the soda versus pop versus, versus Coke. You know, I know in some states, it's some regions you know, that Coke refers to everything. And then I'm, I say soda and I don't know. My, my point is, I guess it's less about pronunciation, but I'm open for whatever works for people. Yeah, definitely. Certainly. So I would love to know how your job is different from like at each of them. So how is your job different at uh, Sensha versus Kanapa? So they're substantially different, right? I think they're, there's not a lot of overlap. So at Sensha, we're we're processing material on a much, much larger scale. Uh, you know, probably a hundred times more material goes through Sensha at a, at a biomass and extract um, level than what goes through Kanapa. Kanapa's, you know, it's not the biggest brand out there for sure. Um, and so, you know, while on the Sensha side, we're looking at operational efficiencies and really trying to, so one of the other big components that we do at Sensha is we design equipment. So we've designed and built uh, different traction systems and they work, good for different um, different steps of the process. And so we, when we want to focus on improving one efficiency, you know, we kind of dial into that, design some pieces of equipment, test some different things out. We have a lot of um, just additional parts that we can repurpose as we've gone through, uh, you know, a number of iterations through these machines. We have a lot of parts, so we're not really needing to buy more um, equipment to test out a new piece of equipment that we want to make ourselves. Kanapa doesn't really require that level of innovation. So more of my work on Kanapa is really data analysis. Um, Molly is the driver for Kanapa, for sure. I mean, when it comes to brand direction, um, the overall concept for different products, I'll support our chemistry staff where I can and sort of look for ways, um, you know, problems that are gonna come up if we try to scale up a certain product, if we wanna manufacture something. Uh, doing a lot of the work with the labs, you know, making sure that the product that we're making, you know, Molly's got an idea for here, here's the product. It's got to have X amount of CBD in it. You know, the back end work of making sure that amount of CBD in there is probably a balance between myself and our chemists. Um, but I would say data analysis is, is similar on both where just different levels of data. So it's like sales data um, and cost of goods data on the Kanapa side versus uh, operational uh, process data on the on the census side. Yeah, that's really helpful because I knew that they were very different business models, uh, and so I was really interested in what you did at both and like what the participation level was because I sort of assumed it was a little bit different and like that you, the majority of like the heavy lifting was at Sencha, uh, and it sounds like that is accurate. How do you how do you manage your time between the two? Like, is there specific days and time frames that you have available for each that those teams know they can get a hold of you? So it's the same teams for both. We, I want to calibrate the size of Kanapa so that you're, you know, you're picturing the right thing. It, to make a consumer-facing product in the CBD world, you know, you can probably make a thousand products 
uh, start to finish, make and bottle within a day without a lot of equipment. You know, I'm not talking about really expensive off-shelf equipment. And a thousand units in the CBD world is a really decent amount of revenue, which for us just means it's it lasts a few months, right? And so there's not a lot. We didn't. We don't need like a separate team for Kanapa. That said, we do have. Uh, we we mobilized some. Um, I would say just people in our network, friends, but they were helping with the sales side. And so more or less that team was primarily the sales side. The The interesting overlap between Kanapa and Sensha is that Sensha offers private labeling. And so Kanapa sort of is uh, a private label customer of Sensha. And so insofar as the products get made in the same methodology that we're making, that we're private labeling other customers' products, you know, we can use that same skill set and team to work on the Kanapa side. So when it comes to splitting up the time and figuring out priorities, I, it, it just is a balance of what other customers need that private, private labeling service. So it's the same thing if we're trying to look through product development, we just balance that and say, look, you know, we've got a really heavy calendar for the next six weeks with product development for, you know, a couple of different brands, which means that we're going to just put a pause on Kanapa's product uh, generation over the next, you know, six to eight weeks or whatever. Um, on the other side of that, it's sometimes it, it, Kanapa is ne urgently needs additional product if we're doing some type of a launch or something. To date, we've never had to push off a Sencha customer to prioritize Kanapa. I don't know that that would last forever, but um, it doesn't take, I guess what I'll come back to is it doesn't take a lot of uh, the team's effort and time to make the Kanapa products. What takes a lot more time is uh, Molly's work on on packaging design, actually getting the packaging done correctly, um, and then just a lot of I would say like uh, content background and marketing planning and stuff on, on Molly's side, which um, I love to support, but it's usually lower uh, on my list of priorities um, to work on the marketing for Kanapa than it is to work on, for instance, any sales components or engineering or production components on the central side. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what would you what are your set, some recommendations that you would have for somebody who is currently maybe in school or fresh out of school and wants to get into your line of work? Which is my line of work? <laughs> Engineering or entrepreneurialism or? <laughs> well, <laughs> hmm. so the non-entrepreneur side, like if you guys were to grow and you had to hire someone like another you or like a junior level you, what would you, what are your recommendations for someone to sort of get experience that would make them a viable candidate? I think the industry right now needs multifaceted uh, people, meaning that if somebody walked in with a chemical engineering degree, I would certainly take a look at their resume and skill set and experience, but there needs to be this somewhat intangible tenacity to just deal with the problems as they come up. I mean, and, and this is one reason why I personally like working with engineers is they, they have a, a problem solving mindset. It's really easy for anybody to spot a problem. Um, I would really practice solving problems in uh, time crunches with budget crunches, just very creative solutions and being comfortable with, I've described this to our team as the 90% the rule where, you know, we need things to work at a 90% level for us to pretty much be successful. Like I don't need a problem to be solved and a hundred percent, it doesn't need to be, you know, buttoned up with a bow on top and, and everything looking sparkly new. It's got to function, it's got to be reliable and it's got to be, you know, I would say safe and effective. Um, but, but again, what engineers have is very similar to that where it's, let's get the job done with X amount of constraints. And it's, I guess, 
Um, to be more specific, I would certainly get some experience in some part of the uh, hemp supply chain. Realistically, being uh, being a farmhand, I don't know exactly what that entails, but just being able to learn the botanical side of things and understanding the biology of the plant so that we can understand more deeply what it is that we're, we're doing when we're extracting, you know, which molecules are we pulling out, which are we not. Um, an analytical chemistry background is, is very helpful. Um, an experience in an analytical lab is always super helpful because you're, you're learning how to identify um, what's in a product, uh, which is immeasurably helpful for a company that that's what we do is take products out of a plant and put them into some form that consumers are interested in. Um, I did do a bit of uh, fabrication, it was design and fabrication in an extraction, a CO2 extraction company. And I thought that was some incredible hands-on experience to understand how they worked. Um, but the component of, of working there that I think that I learned the most from was we had this test lab where customers would come in and these are, you know, quarter million to three quarter million dollar machines. Um, that's before you really start talking about um, shipping it to them and the commissioning of the machine and whatnot. So, you know, we, we had a, a lab set up where these bigger customers could come in and actually experience running the machine so we could actually show them this is what it's going to, this is what your day is like. It's very, very loud. It, it's not a super comfortable environment. Um, and there was a lot of people that just realized, okay, well, this is definitely not the environment that I want to work in. And so getting experience within an environment that is extraction uh, is a good indication about whether or not you want to work in an environment like that. If you're not happy there, you're just not going to thrive and the company's not going to be successful. And so let's just save everybody a bunch of heartache and, um, you know, self-disqualify, I would say. I don't think that's very encouraging. Let me end it on a more encouraging note. There's a lot of good experience that can apply to what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of ways that I can see a lot of engineering roles applying to, to doing engineering with us. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that is a reoccurring theme on this podcast, in fact, is the importance of learning what you don't want and how that's often more important than figuring out what you do want. Because if you're able to sort of clear the clutter and know your limits and your boundaries and like what makes what makes you miserable, that can really help you hone in on what you do want. Because when you're looking at what you do want, it's a bit like having, um, I don't know, like there's just too many options where it's like, oh, I want to do, it's like say someone thinks that they just like want to be a scientist, right? And you're like, okay, but then what? Like that's so, like you could be studying plankton or you could be like designing the next Adderall. Like there's so many options in what it means to be a scientist that it's, um, it's too broad. So if you can figure out, like uh, I had on uh, a friend of mine, Janina, who is a, uh, she does bio, no, not bioinformatics. Oh, she's a geneticist and she does population genetics, like genetics specifically. And we talked a lot about how she thought she wanted to do one thing and then realized in the lab that like she hated blood and so she ended up just like moving to like a dry lab environment and that that really worked for her and i thought that that was like a really cool way of her figuring out and then going down this path and then also because she's a black woman like realizing how much like her community was being overlooked and not included and like marginalized even within science and then bringing that same lens to that environment. And I thought like, oh, that's an amazing story of figuring out like what you don't want. And then also that can help you really hone in on what you do want and like what 
sparks joy in your life. Because at the end of the day, like you're the one who's going to have to keep showing up for 40 to 60 hours every week for years and years. Or, and then like, if you don't like that and you started something you don't like, you're the same person that's going to have to restart. And you, I don't know, you just never want to end up being one of those people that stays with something because of the, like the sunken cost fallacy. 100%. Uh, I agree 100%. I think that is one of the most exciting components of the human experience is discovering, especially in this like modern 21st century capitalistic world where there's a million, uh, million jobs. And the notion, I, I love the way you phrase it, to say I love science and I want to be a scientist and then realizing, but which part of science do you want to do? It, it can be stinky, it can be, you know, exploratory, it can be very dry on a computer. And I've I think I've dipped my toes in a lot of areas uh, within the sort of scientific world, trying to figure out what it is that I want to do. I, I started out, my uh, undergraduate was uh, astronomy. So pretty much it's astrophysics and you're, you're, you're in a lab or you're on top of a mountain in a, in a telescope. Um, and I, I thought it was, when I, sorry, when I say a lab, I'm in a computer lab, like literally like looking at images on a computer right. um, and doing just incredibly dry stuff but you're dealing with the freaking universe, right? I mean, it's like this big and you're forced into an existential <laughs> crisis at age 18 to be like, yeah, you don't matter. And just like, so my, my point is, so I went from that to then engineering, which in chemical engineering then had this whole other component, which wasn't physics. It was this pretty deep dive into, into chemistry, but then the whole engineering component of it was an algebraic way to treat chemistry, which was like, okay, never heard of this before. Now we're going to suddenly A plus B goes to, see i don't you know i don't even know if we're talking about water here or you know any adderall like whatever so um ending up in business and i think especially i hate the phrase entrepreneurialism i think it can be useful but i, I think it's too vague usually but taking those skill sets of you know science and engineering and, and looking at it through this business lens um it strikes me as even more important that that i would say our, our team members but especially just like individuals that i don't even know they just know what it is that you want to do because when you, if you're in a business environment, especially in a science role, it's very clear you don't want to do that job. It's a nightmare for everybody. Nobody's happy in that situation. And so, I don't know, you could think about it as your civic duty to find out what you like to do so that you can be a, a really happy contributing member and maximize that contribution wherever you end up. Yeah. So you don't make your colleagues miserable. Like other people don't deserve this. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. But yeah, I do think it, it is really good to have a wide variety of experience to pull from no matter what you're doing, because you really are able to approach things in a different way and have, it, I think it, what I've noticed in talking to people I've had on here who a lot of times have shifted careers or just had like a breadth of experience in different areas of what seems like a specific area that you end up developing a better and more system thinking type approach to what you're doing, which really benefits everyone in your business. And uh, unless you're at a large corporation, in which case it's usually uh, people really don't like that when you're at a large corporation because they just want you to like do your job unless you've been hired at like a VP or director level. But it, it can be really beneficial in understanding what problems you're solving that maybe your peers and colleagues like didn't realize were even problems to be solved. And you can, you can kind of just approach things with a uh, like eagle's eye sort of view versus being very in the weeds. How, this is like a very quick transition, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Did your family have any qualms around the idea of you working in cannabis? Like what was that like? I don't know. Like I feel like most of our, I assume we're like sort of close to the same age. Um, I imagine my parents would not be delighted 
probably not surprised, but not delighted if I told them I was going to cannabis. What was that like with your family? You hit the nail on the head. They weren't thrilled. Uh, so to kind of paint the picture a bit, I'm from Chicago. So my family was in Chicago and I'd, um, the year before, about a year before I'd spent six months in South America, just on an adventure. Cause I had some time and was allowed to work remotely from this corporate job that they I had a, a great boss who was just really supportive of me trying to be an adventurous 20 something year old. And he was like, yeah, sure. Take your computer down there. So my folks hadn't seen me and were very nervous when I came back. Uh, they were really happy. And then I immediately jumped into starting this hydroponic vegetable company. And they're like, what, what experience do you have? You're, you're an engineer. Like, what are you trying to like start a company for? Like you've got, and, and this was no money. I didn't really understand, like I'd written out things that I called a business plan, but they were really just like visions of things that could happen in 30 years. Like, you know, like they, they would be better off as a sci-fi book than, than a business plan. <laughs> and so as that starts to realize, or so that starts to like kind of crater, um, it wasn't a, a positive experience for me. It was really stressful. Um, I definitely maxed out credit cards and was like, oh, this is the, this is the entrepreneurial dream right here. And it was just like no revenue. I had a buddy who was a chef in a restaurant that would buy my basil. And that was like, you know, like 40 bucks a month or something like that of revenue that I was getting. And I was paying for this warehouse I was living in. And so when I told them that the, the next plan I had was to <laughs> go drive out to Oregon to work in the hemp industry, they're like, all right, you've just like failed kind of here and you're going to go sell weed. Like, what do you, how is that a plan? Or like, where is that even a better plan? And what I explained to them was the, the adventure that I had in South America, I bought a one-way ticket to Buenos Aires and kind of just like trusted myself to figure out how to make that a success. Um, I had a couple of objectives some things I wanted to uh, see and do. I knew I had to work remotely. So I, you know, I had an X amount of time that I had to work and then I had some free time and the whole thing worked out better than I could have planned it. And I sort of took that mindset to uh, Trantor is the name of the um, hydroponic company. Trantor Hydroponics is the name of the company that I started in Chicago. And I took some of that concept to Trantor and said, you know what, I can just I can just jump and figure out where I'm going to land like midair or something like that. And of course, that, that wasn't that didn't really work out exactly the way that I planned for Trantor. But I told them that, like, I, I really think that the same mentality works where what I'm really just doing is betting on myself and trying to just do um do something that I believe in personally, but also that I believe myself can figure out down the road. That makes sense grammatically. Um, and so my parents were kind of stuck between this point of telling me, no, don't trust yourself. Or I, I don't know what the alternative was. Or like, you know, maybe maybe this is a bad idea, right? Like the, the, the logic that they had to kind of come up with. You really set right? it up what for this. That? That's like an amazing yeah. set. That's like an amazing setup of like, well, if I'm telling you this because I trust myself and um, I, I hope my, I don't think my mom really listens to this. I know she started to listen to one episode, but I, I know that she dropped off and I do wonder if I haven't re-listened to that episode and I'm like, Ooh, did I swear too much or did I say something rude? But for sure in times that my parents have uh, not trusted, they basically always trust my judgment because I never ask them for money, which is sort of like, I guess their gauge of when I'm making good decisions or like decisions they can weigh in on. But I always go like, well, you raised me to, and I'll be like, but you told me to believe in myself. You raised a confident, independent child. Should I, should I do something else? And then they are like, uh, well, okay. Like, I guess I don't really 
because I can't tell you not to be confident. That would not be good. No, I had that, I had that conversation with my dad yesterday again for the upteenth time where he just said, it's like, look, I'm, I'm sorry that you're like, you work so hard and you're stressing all this out. He's like, no, I wish I had like a business that you could walk into. Or I wish I had like, you know, some money for you or something. So you didn't have to work this hard. I said, dad, like, what, what are you talking about? You raised a hardworking kid. And I referenced my brother and sister are really hardworking as well. I said, look at, look at the family you raised. Like, yes, I work hard, but no matter what I, if, if it wasn't this, it'd be something else I'm working hard on. Like, so what do you, you know, what, what part of that is, is bad. Um, but I do remember having the car fully packed. Um, I was going to drive from Chicago down to St. Louis to pick up Molly. And we were going to drive out to Oregon. And uh, the day of my dad was still trying to convince me not to go just, you know, just pretty overtly directly, you know, son, if I haven't said it before, I really think this is a bad idea. It's like, you know, you said it before dad, like, but also like the car's packed, like, come on, decision's been made. You could, you know, I, I don't know, send me off with, they're very encouraging. My parents are incredibly supportive, obviously, very encouraging. I couldn't have gotten here without them. I, thought they, I think they've taught me a lot. Um, but I think they are nervous about me um, failing and then the results of that failure. Like, I think they, they're not concerned about the failure impacting, like, my life unless, it, unless I was, like, spiraling into, like, depression and being like, oh, I'm worthless or whatever, which, you know, I think I'm again, self-confident enough to just be like, okay, a failure is a failure. And, and, and my impression in the business world, especially listening to um, NPRs, like how I built this of, of every entrepreneur on earth, just basically saying, yeah, it is really, really tough. And I failed like a thousand times before I got here. Um, and hearing those stories of how long people go without seeing anything that could be remotely described as success. My point to them is like, let's take the long view. Um, you know, I like that analogy. I think this was in the Coen Brothers movie. Like life is a, is a hedge maze and while you're in it, it doesn't make any freaking sense. You're just like constantly lost. But like, if anybody was looking from above, you would just be like, yeah, I mean, like you're going to get from point A to, to point B. I mean, like that's, that's the goal. You're just kind of like taking the circuitous route. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I think also it's like, well, what else am I going to do? Right? Like, am I just going to, if you're using the maze metaphor, like, am I just going to sit down? right? Like, is that a good use of the next? Like, I come from a family of people that live a very long time. Like, I'm going to be here forever. Like, am I, what, you want me to just be boring for, like, the next 80 years? Like, I mean, my great-grandma, yeah, my great-grandma lived to be 100. The, the grandma that I'm, like, very close with, she's 89. She'll be 90 this year, and, like, she still is, like, on it. So I just been like, well, it's going to be a long haul, guys. I'll have plenty of time to recover from whatever like, you know, bad business choices I make now, there will still be jobs. I probably, like, there will still be ways that I can figure it out. And like, um, and I think also when you can find, I, I similarly am always busy. I mean, anytime that I've ever had a contract end or like, you know, been laid off from a job or whatever, I was always like, oh, great, because I have a ton of other things. Like, I've never just stopped and been like, well, I have no idea what to do with my day. Um, so I've always had multiple things going on in my life. So I've never, I've never just like woken up the next day and been like, oh, no, how do I fill the next, like 12 hours before I go to sleep again? Yeah, no, I think that's the that's the exact right attitude. And I, I take the long view, too. I really, i I, I, the notion of being able to recover from a mistake is like the cornerstone of my, um, I think outlook. I mean, that that's, 
yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. Yeah, it's how we learn. Like, it's how we learn, and it's how the people around us learn, and it's how we grow. And similarly, I listen to a lot of podcasts with entrepreneurs, and it is really nice to hear people who are, and I think it's becoming more socially acceptable, too, and even applaudable that people are being honest about their failures. And it's it's just really awesome. I know I had April Pride on who she is the founder of Vanderpop, which she sold to Canopy Crows. And we talked a lot about the companies that she'd started before that she'd taken a loss on. And so when she told her husband that she wanted to start this, there was barely enough some like skepticism, but he was supportive and then it ended up paying off. And so I think it is really cool when you can talk to people and they're like, Well, I did this and then I pivoted to this other thing where I saw this opportunity here. And sometimes, you know, the timing's wrong or the timing's right. And perhaps you're just in the wrong geography or whatever it may be. Um, but it is really reaffirming. And, and I don't know, I guess I also really like, I think it's Tim Ferriss. There's like a few people, Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday are both people who've talked about their approach to like an MBA. And, and the way that I see it sometimes is like, oh, I paid a school so if I'm going to start a business, like I'm literally just investing in believing in myself and like I, what we should all be like really happy to hand our money to over to a school with no guarantee of like a return on investment. But then we wouldn't do the same for our own ideas. Like why do I have that much faith in like the education system? Not really. <laughs> like, um, so did they have, did, did your parents have any sort of, um, pushback on cannabis as a whole and like as an industry from like a moral perspective or was it just more of like a risk assessment concern? Um, I think a combination of those things. My parents knew that I smoked weed because, and I, I so I don't, I don't advocate at all for people to consume cannabis when brains haven't fully developed. I think that I started smoking at much too young of an age and I pretty much think people should probably wait till they're you know 23 24 25 and in that range by the time I was 18 my parents were well aware of the fact that I had this this love of this plant and you know my dad's approach growing up was he was more concerned with us consuming alcohol he was more concerned with us getting uh, just the injurious components of alcohol are not just like the effects on your brain it's are you going to jump in a car are you going to do something stupid with your friends and so he was adamant growing up, you know, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. Um, and we didn't get as much of the same don't smoke pot. Not that he was an advocate of it at all, but it was very clear to us that something was really, really bad and that cannabis was not quite, um, cannabis wasn't as bad as alcohol, I think was the way I probably described growing up. Um, my mom was never really an advocate for it. Uh, not that my dad was really an advocate, but like my mom was, I think, more staunchly opposed to it from like a probably a point of misunderstanding what it is, but just, you know, she was just not wanting drugs in the house. And so um, I think that when I told them that I was going to go do this, the responses were completely reversed from where I had been growing up, right? So this is a decision that I made to come out here when I was probably, I don't know, 26 or 27. And um, my dad was the one who was more opposed to it at a moral standpoint um, my mom was a little bit more level-headed and was like, well, it is becoming legalized. And she'd educated herself a little bit to the point of like, well, okay, I get it. Like you guys didn't become heroin addicts when you were 16. And so like, you know, I guess this isn't quite all that bad. And, you know, I, I think that when I framed it as a cool plant to work with in terms of extraction and commercialization of a plant, of, of a, something that could become a botanical medicine, I think they understood where I was at because my focus was not getting into cannabis 
because cannabis was cool or interesting or like, you know, I just wanted a bunch of free weed. The, the goal here has always been to start with hemp because it is profitable right now and use that same technology skill set and then ideally the same vehicle, corporate vehicle, um, to manufacture uh, extracts, standardized extracts from different plants. And I mean, there's no shortage of botanicals out there, uh, whether it's um, through TCM or Ayurvedic or uh, you know, American uh, history, um, you know, the use of the different plants we've used in this country. Um, I think that, the, that hemp is going to, in about five years, really just be seen as one of the rest of them. And CBD is going to be cool, but you're not going to have the dedicated CBD shelf it's just going to be integrated with the rest of, uh, you know, whether it's astragalus or ginseng or echinacea or, or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, when I phrase it to my parents of like, just another stepping stone, I was able to paint this vision of like, I'm not getting stuck here. I'm not going to go and just sell weed and then, you know, just drop off the face of the earth. I think I, they also understood that I understood that working is working. And if you're working with cannabis, or you're working with basil, you're still working. I mean, the, your day-to-day is probably the same thing. You know, you're not like, just because you're working with weed doesn't mean that like, you're smoking weed and watching Cheech and Chong, right? I mean, like it's an enormously complicated regulatory environment. It's, and this is where my dad was really concerned was he was just like, you're not gonna be able to get a bank loan. You're not gonna be able to get a car loan. You're not gonna be able to, um, you know, your landlord's gonna be okay with the industry that you're in. And, and he was right that there, there was, years ago, there was still this stigma when you said I'm working within cannabis. Um, and certainly banks wouldn't work with you. I mean, I, um, I, I didn't want to come out here and work in cannabis. I wanted to come to Oregon and work within hemp. In 2016, there wasn't uh, a really rigorous hemp industry. And so I ended up doing what I didn't expect to do, which was sitting in a dispensary, um, basically dispensing cannabis to people. And it was a great learning opportunity. And what the reason why that ended up being the amazing springboard that it was was not just because I learned about the plant itself, but I was actually given a management opportunity and nobody had ever offered me that role before. I'd always been, here's a scientist's role, an engineer's role. You don't manage people in those roles, right? This was an opportunity to actually experience cash handling and marketing and supply chain, like dealing with um, our vendors, dealing with our customers. And really, this is where like business analytics really kind of kind of got its um, claws in my brain. I love data. I would self-describe as a data junkie just because I don't feel like I could live without it. Uh, and this was like a whole new set of data that I didn't even understand how dollars and cents interacted. And so I think my parents were more nervous because I didn't know what I didn't know before I came out to Oregon. And then really quickly, I was able to start having this conversation with my folks where it was totally different. Parents at one point or another have been self-employed. They've either owned their own business. My mom's a speech therapist and she had a small practice um, that she owned. My father became a, uh, went from a, uh, he owned a pharmacy and then became a pharmaceutical lawyer and uh, owned his own law practice. I mean, both of them working out of our house, out of our basement. It's very, uh, it was inspirational growing up watching what they do because neither of them are really focused on the money side of it, but they both understood accounting. They both understood the need for cash flow. Um, and they recognized that after the first entrepreneurial venture I had, I didn't have any of those skills. And so I think their biggest concern was that I was going the opposite direction. And, and ironically, was because of my resume was really quickly picked out as like, okay, well, you're not just, you know, you've gone to college number one. So like, let's kind of recognize that. And then cool, you're good with numbers. That's not like, not everybody here is good with numbers. And so let's see what you can do in this kind of a role. So I was, I think that I actually got a lot of experience, uh, valuable business experience a lot quicker 
going into cannabis than if I had tried to stay in corporate America or to your point of, if I tried to go get an MBA at that point, it would have cost me probably the same amount of money and I expect that I would have learned less. And worst of all, I wouldn't have had the network to launch a business. I mean, the, the experience of learning what a network is needed. I mean, I've, I mean, I can write a whole thesis about why Trantor failed now because I, I get it on so many different levels. There were so many things I didn't understand. And um, anyway, I guess I'm just I'm thinking back on it. I'm kind of impressed the pushback that my parents gave me, the confidence that they were kind of just like, okay, you know what, realistically, like, we'll support you in whatever way we can. Um, and then the opportunities that came out from that are just, uh, I think, kind of amazing. So you and Molly are co-founders, but then you're also a couple. How do you like separate business from your relationship? Like, are there rules that you guys have for like, we just don't talk about it in the living room or like whatever? What does that look like? Oh man, I, we started out wanting to put guardrails on it. One rule we had was no discussions of work after 9 p.m. I, you know, we tried to do, let's just take weekends off. All of that kind of fell by the wayside. What we were doing last year, we, we went on a date every week and tried to take some time just for us. The reason why that, I think it worked a lot of the time, but if there was a crisis that popped up, obviously that's what was on the top of both of our minds and that's what we would discuss. So despite us trying to talk about what book are we reading and what movie did we just see? You know, like the, we, we're not reading that many books. We're not watching that many movies. Like the, the amount of non-work conversations, I think were difficult. And what we, what, I think what we've discovered is successful is to not try to make these really stark differences and really just respect the, the flow of both the business and the relationship, right? So if like, if I'm having a tough day, just say, Molly, I, I really, I can't talk about work right now. I need like two hours. I just got to veg out, you know, whatever it is, let's go for a walk or let's make some dinner, whatever it is. And just being able to be really honest with each other about where we're at mentally has been far more important than creating these rules and trying to, to segment different components of life when really there's a, there's a tremendous value in being able to discuss things that come up like, oh my God, we got this great opportunity that came up. It's, it's 9.30 PM. Can we start talking about it? Can we you know, build out this, this model and see what this could look like if we jumped on this? You know, what's the actual capital that we need right now? And that allows us to also then take time off when those types of things come through. So when we, we jump on it, when we've got, I guess my point is we jump on it when we can, when we're able to focus on it. And then we're just transparent with each other when it's, if there's too much on my plate, you know, it's been 90 hours this week. Like I need a, need an hour off. One thing that we're doing this year is this is COVID really screwed this plan up, but it works. It was the great plan back in January. Every month we were going to plan to go do something somewhere. Just take one weekend off a month. That's been the hardest thing I think for both of us is justifying taking a weekend off. And we had a great one. We went crabbing on the Oregon coast in January. Oh, how fun. Yeah. We had some really great ones and we had a whole list of things that were planned out and then COVID happened and all the, most of the plans got canceled. So we were actually just discussing yesterday what the heck we're going to do for our like March or sorry, for our April adventure. We basically skipped March because that I mean, obviously wasn't going to happen. Actually, I'm totally wrong. We went to a hot spring at the beginning of March before this all transpired. We definitely got one into March. Oh, nice. Um, but That's was, good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've done three this year, but yeah. So I don't know what, what's going to happen for April. Do you have a yard? Like a backyard? No. No, we have a, uh, like a four by four cement square that for some reason, this is the only apartment in the unit that has that. And we were charged like an extra hundred bucks. The, uh, the landlord, you know, the lease that we saw was X amount. I forget what it was. And then just tacked on an extra hundred bucks. Right. And we're like, well, why, what is this for? He's like, well, that's for the, the yard. We went and looked out the yard. It's like, it's a little cement square. You can't do much on that. But <laughs> Yeah. You're like, well, my like weird side porch, like this is hardly yeah, a yard. It's just. 
and people walk back there. I don't know how they exactly get even back there. We're the only one with a back door, so I don't. I it's a weird thing. I don't love being out there. It's just like very boxy kind of. I feel less inside in my apartment than I do on that little square of I don't know concrete. I, yeah, I, I thought we could I could step out there for you know enjoy like a cigarette. I don't smoke, so like that's not a thing. Or I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I was like, oh, I wonder if you could like, I mean, I'm not even a camping person, but I feel like all the Pacific Northwest is like I lived in Seattle for five years and people there love to camp. And I was like, oh, you could just like camp in your yard for a weekend. Or I mean, I don't know. That's a great idea. It's tricky right now. Like I have a friend who has an empty house in Carpinteria. And I was thinking of just going there for like the next week or two to just be there instead. And then I don't know why I don't like it's not it's still quarantining like nobody will be there it's literally just like a house with like the bare necessities in it like a bed and I think a blender or something so an internet which is all that I was like great as long as there's a counter I could stand at to do my work um maybe I'll still do that but yeah I was like that was going to be my sort of in lieu of all the other things I had going on that have been canceled um that was going to be my my go-to place but yeah it is weird and I yeah it is very has it how has this affected your business I know we only have a couple minutes left but if you have like in in a one minute or less description (laughs) I think the uncertainty is horrifying Uh, I think that the first step that we did was try to make sure that uh, we understood whether we were going to be in business or not whether we're going to have to be one of those mandatory shutdown businesses Oregon didn't uh, Oregon did mandatorily shut down a handful of businesses, but most manufacturing was untouched. And so Central Side is allowed to operate with additional uh, social distancing protocols. It's really just kind of made us, I think, a little bit more paranoid about additional cleaning and just making sure that everything is overly sterilized. We've got a lot of space. And so there's just insane amounts of room. I mean, we're talking like 40 feet between people. We just drag tables really far apart. And, um, and on the Kanapa side, we were concerned about not being able to sell down the road. And so I think a lot of businesses did this. We just launched a pretty aggressive sale, a 50% off sale and just said, you know, let's try to drain down inventory as much as possible, generate revenue now in case we have to weather a storm for a couple of weeks. You know, as it looks now, um, some of our customers are hit really hard on the central side and the stimulus package that just got released last week, I think, um, we're looking at it. We're talking to our uh, customers about it. And it's a lot of, because we're essentially so relationship focused, we're really trying to do everything in tandem because us staying open while all of our customers are closed um, isn't going to work for, for either of us, but also vice versa. If they're going to need us to stay open, we want to start planning and making sure we've got the budget for that. I think it was two minutes. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No, 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 that's totally fine. No, that was very thorough and helpful. Um, so, the last question that I ask everybody is what is something that you would want to hear a future episode of this podcast about? So um, like basically I just talked to people about the behind the scenes of either what they do or how something is made. So what is something that you'd want to hear an episode about? Oh, more scientists for sure. I think that I'm fascinated with the life of uh, like a mid career or early career scientist. I think that it's incredibly stressful and it's you know as noble as as journalism or um, being like an actual political leader, you know, standing up to public opinion and doing what's what's right as opposed to what's popular. Um, I just picture you know, especially astrophysicists. I, I've got obviously a, a soft spot for them, but um, 
having to kind of plan your life around celestial objects is something that humans did for a very long time. And we no longer do that aside from maybe the sun, but even that, you know, like people just schedule meetings whenever, and you know, it's a 24 seven news cycle in a global economy that's really never on pause except during a pandemic. So, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated with early and mid career scientists trying to make their name. They fight for grant money and it's, um, it's just a fascinating world that I thought I would be part of. Um, and honestly, it seemed way too difficult. Like entrepreneurialism seems a heck of a lot easier than what most scientists go through, especially the physicists where you're dealing with things that are so esoteric and there's just such a difficult way to monetize. It's like, you're not going to figure out how to make money out of knowing what, how to make quarks for like 50 to hundred years. Like I, you know, the timeline on some of that stuff is you don't see the results of your work. Um, it's just a lot of faith that humanity continues. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it takes a really unique person. Yeah, I agree. I had on, um, I think episode four was with a friend of mine, Peter Neff, who is a glaciologist. And so he spent a lot of time in Antarctica doing like sampling ice cores and stuff like that, which is really fascinating. And then I also had on Dr. Brian Keating, who's an astrophysicist, and he wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. Um, and that was like a really cool conversation to have. And his book is great. Like his book is really, really good. Um, I'll, I'll send, I don't know if I have your email, but if I don't have your email, I will send Diana. Um, but this was so much fun, Ruben. Thank you so much for being on. Where can people, I mean, you don't seem, I uh, obviously looked you up ahead of this. You don't seem like too much of an internet guy. I assume you would rather people follow Sensha and Kanapa. Where can people find those two on the internet? That's a great question. Uh, so getkanapa.com is Kanapa's email uh, or website. And there's good info on there. And it's our Instagram. I don't even know what our Instagram handle is. Oh, that's okay. I'll link to it. For, I can link to them both. So I'll link to both uh, websites and the Instagram in the description of this episode for listeners. And then I'll just mention it. I'll record an outro after this and mention it. Um, but yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, Thank you I so much. It. it was a lot of fun. Thank you very much uh, for all your questions. I Yeah, this is a ton of fun. Yeah, definitely. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. I really appreciate Ruben's time and energy. I had a great time getting to know him and getting a better understanding of what he does, sort of the landscape of cannabis and CBD, and just there's a lot more to learn. As I said at the top of the podcast, first of all, I recommend listening to April Pride's How to Do the Pot. You will learn a lot more about CBD and THC usage. Also, Kanapa generously gave us a promo code for BTS Podcast listeners. So if you use BTS Podcast 25 at checkout, you will save 25% on your order. I am nearly certain that this is an ongoing offer, so feel free to order and reorder and use that promo code. Support a small business, support a woman-owned, well, or partially owned, but uh, yeah, give them some support. Their products are terrific. Thanks again for listening. Feel free to become a monthly subscriber and be sure to listen to part two with Molly, Ruben's co-founder. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder that I would love for you and greatly appreciate your ongoing support. You can become a monthly supporter at anchor.fm slash BTS podcast. Thank you again to Camillo and Idris for their ongoing support. You too can get a shout out if you choose to support this podcast. And again, book your hotels with Hotel Tonight. Use LCook61 when you sign up. Get a massage with Soothe. Use LZLRZ when you sign up so that I can save on my next massage. And if you ever feel like just Venmoing me as a thank you, I won't say no. DM me. Actually, here's my Venmo. It's just at Lene-Cook. Super easy. 
Anyways, thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to part two with Ruben's co-founder, Molly. She shares a wealth and abundance of information, and I truly enjoyed learning so much from each of them. I appreciate you listening. Subscribe, rate, review, follow the podcast everywhere, and uh, buy some Kanapa products. Buy them for you, for your friends, for your family members. They're great.